In 1000 BC in ancient Egypt, there was a landowner who unfortunately was missing one of his workers who was a slave at the time in his estate. And the landowner wanted to advertise to the people around him. And he didn't know exactly quite sure how to spread the message, hey, I've lost one of my workers. So he wrote on papyrus an advertisement offering payment of gold for the return of his worker. This slate can actually be seen in the British Museum in London. Little did he know exactly where this was going to head, because in 1872, an American gentleman named Aaron Montgomery Ward started a mail order business with a one-page catalog. Twelve years later, a gentleman named Sears started a catalog where he had over 500 products advertised that went out to 300,000 homes. Now, that would have been great. However, not everybody had a mailbox. And in 1923, it all changed. The U.S. government required every American home to either have a mailbox or to have a mail slot so they could ensure that any mail that was sent to an individual was going to be delivered. Flash forward to the modern world in the 1970s, and little did they know that we were giving birth to an industry called direct mail marketing. And our guest today is at the forefront of the evolution of that business and has brought this ancient business from Egypt into the modern world as mail evolved from snail mail to electronic mail. Welcome to A Climb to the Top, Stories of Transformation on 77 WABC. I'm Chuck Garcia, and I am delighted to host Joe Bordeaux. Joe, welcome to the show. Chuck, uh, great to be with you. Um, I was not the founder of Alpac, but uh, let's correct uh, that. I knew that I knew the founder very, very well. He was right here in St. Petersburg. He started the Valpac company with a five hundred dollar loan uh, from his mother. He had to sign a note uh, for that <laughs> loan, and uh, the rest was history. And uh, Terry Label was running the company back in the uh, late '60s and uh, through the '70s into the early '80s. And um, I came around, actually, I discovered one in my mailbox uh, up in Richmond, Virginia, 1977, not realizing my life would be changed. And well, uh, 33 years later, I was still around. I think the uh, story began um, where, like everybody else, you're going through college, you're an undergraduate, you're not really sure what you're doing. Um, I was gradually moving towards being a, a school teacher, an American history high school teacher was was where I ended up. I liked history. I liked American history very much. I took some education courses. I proceeded to do my student teaching, got my uh, secondary school certificate uh, in the state of Virginia, and then discovered at the end of my senior year, I could make twice as much money being the morning disc jockey on a small radio station in the Shenandoah Valley and selling advertising. And uh, that's what I did for the first five years instead of what I had gone to school to do. But um, I was a trained teacher. I had some experience doing that. Uh, my radio um, years uh, gave me experience in reporting. A lot of uh, spot news, you were called upon to go out and cover fatal car crashes, shootings, uh, various and sundry things. Uh, with very little preparation. And so you you had some on-the-job training in journalism. I later read some journalism, took some online courses for journalism. But those two things became crucial, I think, to my corporate career later um, because uh, 
uh, reporting and teaching is a big, big part of the job. Indeed, reporting and teaching, whether you know it or not, when you are selling, that's what you're mm-hmm. really, it's really what you're doing. Before mm-hmm. we get into Valpac, sure. help us understand as you begin to sell, and what's good about that is you know what's going to increase the income as much as we love teachers. Mm-hmm. What did you learn about yourself as you were doing this thing that you didn't set out to do, but all of a sudden, here you are? Well, I, on the business side, a lot of it was uh, thinking that sales was supposed to be so hard. Uh, quite frankly, it wasn't. Um, <laughs> me at all. It was all about uh, interpersonal relationships and meeting people and uh, uh, getting to know a little bit about my prospects and customers. I remember I had a large uh, car wash owner who turned out to have a PhD in uh, international relations. <laughs> we ended up on all my sales calls. We, we always talked about the world situation and very little about Valpac or, or his car wash business. But uh, I, I found it was a very natural thing. Um, uh, you know, the whole uh, challenge uh, in, in uh, our form of advertising was always the prospecting part, getting in front of people, getting people to uh, uh, give you the opportunity to get to know each other and, and actually make a presentation. That's always been the challenge for 50 years and it, it is today. But it's still rooted in communication skills, right. whether yes. t- yeah. teaching or reporting. Mm-hmm. I'd like to flash forward. I think the, the, the evolution was that I was a franchisee, a multi-unit franchisee of Valpac, had partners, and I did that for 15 years. I, my teaching skills came into play when I was called upon to create the training programs for Valpac. And so for two or three years, I did that as an independent business. Um, uh, taking care of our franchisees around the country and new Valpac franchisees. I was a contract kind of person. And then when the company was acquired by Cox Enterprises in 1991, I was asked to move to corporate headquarters down here in St. Petersburg, which I did. And then over a period of two or three years, moved up and, and got promoted and became president in, I think, 1994 or, or so. Um, and, you know, that whole process um, Real, really made it clear to me why these two skills were so important, the reporting and the teaching. Um, my mentor and boss, the gentleman who had acquired the company um, on behalf of Cox, um, sat me down early <laughs> and when I was beginning to question um, how I could possibly be the leader of the organization when quite frankly, I didn't know anything about printing, graphics, IT. I wasn't very strong in finance. Uh, you know, I was an American history major, uh, quite frankly. You and, were a teacher and a reporter, not a president a of a company. <laughs> so uh, this gentleman, Mr. Musselman, uh, said to me, you're a reporter and you're a teacher. All right, let's talk about the reporting side. Um, in order to make good decisions and to be a good leader, uh, you need to get the story. And let's talk about getting a story, going out and covering that fatal car crash. How do you do that? Well, you, you get the story probably if you've already developed some good sources and you've nurtured those sources along the way. They trust you. They know when they can confide in you, when something's going to be on the record or off the record. All of that applies in a large corporate organization. He said, have a friend in every department. If you don't know anything about IT, well, make some friends in the IT department mm. or the printing press department or the folding paper folding department, wherever it is, 
uh, build relationships with those sources so you can walk the floor and when you are dealing with a question or just confirming that you're making the right decision that uh, you can approach your sources and, and you'll get uh, and if you get the story, and I remember him saying this, and this is in the newspaper parlance, but if you know what the headline is, if you know what the lead is, the paragraph, you know what the, you know, the balance of the story is, and you get to the right conclusion, you're almost certainly going to make a good decision because you've got the story. So that, that uh, allowed me, I think, to do my job, you know, for about 15 years and be successful at it. Uh, the teaching part, was more about the why of things. A lot of times you'll hear leaders in, in corporate structure make an announcement and uh, they will say, well, here's what we're doing. And why are we doing it? Well, because we decided to do it. <laughs> um, and, because uh, I said so. That's right, exactly right. <laughs> right. Well, that doesn't work very well, particularly in a franchise organization where you have you know hundreds of CEOs. Uh, that own the individual units of a franchise system. Right. So it's all about the why. And you can't just say it once. You have to uh, be teaching the why over and over and over again. I remember um, I got some great advice. I was put in a position of having to close a large plant in Las Vegas, Nevada, when we were consolidating our manufacturing operations. We no longer had a reason to have a plant in Las Vegas, Nevada. And my job was to go out there and make the announcement. And those things are always very difficult. Uh, luckily, we were fortunate to be able to give six months notice. And, and uh, so but once the uh, people uh, heard the news uh, that the plant was closing six months later and how we were going to take care of them during this period of time, the rest of it was a business lesson about why we were doing it. And as I recall, I had maps of the United States and, and I, I explained all of the business reasons. And I said, uh, and, and that's why, you know, we made the decision. I'm sorry we made it. We had to make it. But I uh, hope you'll understand that it made sense. And, and when I walked the floor after that announcement, um, the, I had security people with me in case there was, instead of that, it was a lot of hugging and saying, well, you know, obviously we're disappointed, but uh, we do the same thing too. It made sense <laughs> to close this plant. What do you know? And, uh, that was a great, I think, example of the why, uh, the importance of why uh, any, any uh, strategic decision or corporate decision or tactic, anything, you always have to just remember, it's my job to teach the why. And and what do you think the consequence is if you had dismissed or not even communicated the why and had said, because I said so, what would have been the unintended consequences at that moment? Well, I think uh, uh, if it had been in today's world, there would be all kinds of stuff on glass door. There would be so social media reaction, right? Um, you know, the company going out of business, I mean, all kinds of messages could be out there that would, would have been wrong. Instead, we were closing the plant because we were growing so fast, right. but it didn't make any sense. And so it was important to uh, explain the why. So there, right. there would be, there's always all kinds of consequences in franchise organizations where I work today as an advisor and consultant. A lot of times uh, franchise relations issues are related to that as well, where the franchisor uh, has made some decisions, not explained the why, not gotten consensus, not listened, not gotten feedback, and it's resulted in um, perhaps a lawsuit, um, a franchise association being formed, uh, any number of, of, uh, of things, or uh, a slowing of growth because uh, 
uh, current franchisees aren't validating the business when new franchisees are looking at it. So all of this does tie together. Um, but uh, I keep coming back to these two points and, and without the reporting and without the teaching, um, you know, I'd be still the morning radio announcer in the Shenandoah Valley. Indeed. And I, I think even in the last several years, there's a leadership subject matter expert, a very popular TED talk from a guy named Simon Sinek. And he mm -hmm. wrote a book called Start With Why. And he talked about the golden triangle where he said, a lot of people can say what you do. They can say how you do it. But how many people can really say why you do it? Because people don't buy what you do. They buy why you do it. Seems like you were way ahead of that one. <laughs> Well, I hadn't read the book. Right, uh, but, but, but you, you, you learned that along the way. That's right, and I've read the book since. So. Yeah, no, very good. And, and a lot of times these books, after you've already been through this, then you really love the books. Right. <laughs> oh, definitely. You, you appreciate them so much. But you also mentioned as we were preparing for this, you were influenced by a leadership guy whose books I really admire named Ken Blanchard. And he Absolutely. wrote a book called The One-Minute yeah. Manager. Mm -hmm. um, for our listeners, I think it'd be great to, to, to share, what were your takeaways and how did you apply them to the growth of your business from Ken? Well, I, I did and I still do. Um, yep. you know, Ten years after retiring, I, I apply them every day. Right. Uh, one of his books was uh, Leadership in the One-Minute Manager. There was also an excellent video uh, that went along with it, as I Indeed. recall. Yep. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, by with the chance of uh, not really doing a good job on this, uh, the summarization of Leadership in the One-Minute Manager, one of the key points is that um, – Anytime you learn something new, you go through stages. Uh, so you could be learning to play golf or play tennis or be president of Alpac or any, anything, but you're going to go through these four steps. And those four steps very quickly are enthusiastic beginner where you find out you're going to be doing something. Um, it could be going out to play golf and suddenly there's this beautiful golf course and you've never played golf before and you get up at the first tee and you hit the ball straight down the fairway the first time and you say, man, this is great. I've been missing, you know, and then the next shot goes sideways and in the water and you realize it's not that easy. Um, you know, in my case, I've told I'm okay, you're, I'm promoting you to be president of, of this company that you love and you've been involved with for many, many years. And wow, that's terrific. I'm going to be president of the company. And then very quickly you realize, wait a minute, this is really hard. I don't know what I need to do. I don't know anything about these other, how am I ever going to do this? And so the second step is disillusioned learner. Okay. You're a disillusioned learner. It wasn't as easy as you thought when you were all enthusiastic and excited. Well, what you need is coaching. Uh, so if you're bringing somebody into your organization, uh, they're going to be enthusiastic because they got the job. They're going to become disillusioned. It's your job to be the coach. If you are on the other side of that, you need to reach out and find a coach. <laughs> Luckily, I had a coach. Uh, those coaches are usually available, but you may have to go out and find it. But you always have to realize when you're starting something new, you don't start unless you're excited about it or enthusiastic about it. Once you do very quickly, you're going to become a disillusioned learner and you need coaching. Once you get to that point, once you get through, if you can work your way through the second step, then you become a, a reluctant uh, contributor. You're, you're competent, you can do it, but then you're not necessarily committed to it or going to do it for a long time or really do what you need to do to be a peak performer. You know, there are millions and millions of, um, reluctant contributor golfers out there that are never going to be professionals or never going to, you know, beat 90 or hit their age or anything uh, because they're really not willing to put in the practice time that's necessary to uh, become a peak performer. 
and that's true in business. It's true, you know, in anything. And, uh, you know, in, in, in my life today, since retirement, uh, uh, you know, I've, I've tried a lot of old things again and new things for the first time. And every time um, I'm all excited about it. And then a day or two later, you realize, wait a minute, this is a lot harder. You know, I'm not sure I really prepared to do this. I don't know if I can do it. This doesn't feel very great. Yeah. And I always go back to Dr. Blanchard and, uh, and, uh, and leadership and the one minute manager. Great. I want to switch focus in just a second. Let's take a station identification. You're listening to a climb to the top stories of transformation on talk radio 77 WABC. I'm Chuck Garcia. And my guest this evening is Joe Bordeaux. But you had an opportunity to decide given your own success that there is another chapter in your life that you were contemplating writing. Give us the timeline, what you were thinking, and the, the evolution of that chapter. Well, I had the luxury of having a dad that lived to be 102 and a grandfather who um, lived into his 80s. Both of them had very long uh, retirements. My grandfather was a mail carrier. Oh. <laughs> no kidding. Letter this is genetic. <laughs> and uh, my dad uh, worked uh, as a civilian uh, in the Pentagon right. uh, for some 30 years. And yep. I retired at age 59 and uh, lived to be 102. So, you know, wow. you can do, the, do the math. Right. And he had a, a wonderful, uh, you know, long life after, after work. So I had those two examples. And as time went on and I, I you know, we were hitting our goals, you know, with the business. Uh, um, we had high goals and, you know, we, we met them. I began to look ahead and say, you know what, I'm going to do the same thing. I don't have any idea what I'm going to do, but um, this, there's going to be a stop here. One of the issues was, you know, walking up to a podium in front of a few thousand people and realizing they're all a lot younger than you are, most of them, <laughs> and you realize maybe it's time to, you know, maybe it's time to move on into something else. So, um, you know, I, I, you know, we obviously planned, you know, financially so that uh, I didn't have a lot of financial worries. Um, and, uh, you know, if I am fortunate to live to be 102, hopefully the money, you know. <laughs> Hopefully it stays put. Uh, right, exactly. But and, and I would imagine you were contemplating, am I retired? Should I pretend to be retired? What was going it, through your head? It all kind of began. The phone began to ring and opportunities began to uh, crop up. And pretty soon I really was uh, pretending to be retired. I, I don't underestimate when you've been connected with something for as long as I was and identified so much with Valpac that when I no longer was, um, you know, there's, that's not easy every day. Um, you know, the company is going on without you. You're no longer that. So if you're not that, who are you? You know, what do you do? And well, suddenly you feel uh, very, <clears throat> not only humble, but uh, uh, you begin, you know, just questioning. And uh, right. I needed to be busy. I needed to be involved with things. And, and I had prior to uh, retiring, I had looked ahead and said, well, I'm not going to be playing golf every day, clearly. Right. Um, so what else, you know, am I going to do? I can only go to so many Tampa Bay Rays baseball games, uh, even with season tickets. Uh, so the things I was focused on was, is there a future for me in broadcasting? <laughs> um, and I, you know, had done some professional baseball 35 years before. And so very quickly, I found myself uh, producing in uh, the network for the Carolina Mudcats in the Southern League, double-A professional baseball in North Carolina, and did two seasons of that, and did a bunch of play-by-play -play with, uh, uh, with the announcer at the time, Patrick Keenings. I got that out of my system. <laughs> 
I would imagine, though, as for those us us who have watched many a baseball game in New York, you know, we hear John Sterling. They make it sound so easy. I would imagine, though, this was. It's not as easy as it sounds. Uh, It's easy to be average, Um, and I am truly a a, you know an average play-by-play announcer, Um, but um, not terribly above average. And so I, I think that's the answer. I, you know, a lot of it is preparation. A lot of it is process, right? Uh, making sure you are prepared to um, uh, be flexible. Um, but, uh, you know, in the end, I realized it was not something that I could have done, you know, for an entire career, even right. in recent years, when I've gone back and filled in, um, you know, the first game is terrifying. The second game, you start to feel like you're competent. By the third game, I'm saying, how many more games and is this really going to go into extra innings? And, you know, and that's <laughs> right. not a good attitude, you know, if you're <laughs> yet play what, when I consider when you're doing there, we're back to the core of telling the story, right? Teaching. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and that's so, exactly right. And history, right. because baseball and history, right? Well, history, yeah, right. But here you are, post President Valpak. You're the chief cook and bottle washer in your corporate heads, headquarters in the den. The phone starts to ring. Mm-hmm. You didn't want to, and why would you disconnect yourself from the successful past? What did you do with Joe Bordeaux Enterprises? Yes. Uh, well, it, there were really three things. Uh, one was this this baseball on the radio, and that led to a development of a relationship with the Shriners Hospitals for Children, um, and we founded a national radio network for the East-West Shrine game. Now, the East-West Shrine Bowl, that's on Sirius XM and FL Radio and 150 radio stations. But before that, um, nonprofit, I, I realized that I, you know, in being involved in a leadership position of a national company here in St. Petersburg, Florida, I had not been involved at all in St. Petersburg, Florida. Um, You know, I wasn't. um, So I really wanted to get involved in a nonprofit. I found a great one, Academy Prep St. Petersburg, which is um, one of three uh, inner city uh, middle schools uh, for um, financially challenged children, rigorous education. I became a trustee, chairman of the board of trustees, still very much involved in that. And um, so that and a couple of other nonprofits here locally continue to take up, uh, you know, a fair amount of my time and and, uh, uh, get a tremendous amount of satisfaction, you know, about uh, about doing that. The one uh, thing that was a complete surprise business-wise in the last few years was the fact that um, I got a call from a, a national franchisor known as College Hunks Hauling Junk and Moving Company uh, based in Tampa. And the two young guys who had started that company, I had met through the International Franchise Association. They called me up uh, about nine years ago and uh, um, asked me to come over for lunch and join this uh, little advisory board that they were forming and uh, really enjoyed doing that and getting in depth with another company that led to another advisory board and another advisory board and other clients. And so uh, now, uh, you know, sitting here in uh, 2020, um, I work with multiple uh, national franchisors. 
Um, one um, excellent one right there in the New York area, Huntington Learning Centers over mm -hmm. in Ardell, New Jersey. The yeah, see founders that. of the After School Tutoring Program, very active uh, with them. Right. And um, also um, uh, suppliers and franchising. I get to continue to teach uh, the fundamentals of franchise management for the International Franchise Association. So I'm, uh, uh, while I'm sitting here, you know, in my den talking to you, uh, other things I'll be doing today. Uh, mostly have to do with uh, other franchised uh, companies. Uh, I love franchising. I love the whole concept and uh, really uh, want to continue to be involved in it uh, as long as I can. Well, it sounds like you've found a pretty good equilibrium between the business that you and all the lessons learned over the years, but also your dedication to, to service, to giving mm. back to those that may not be related to your business, but you can still use those business skills into the life of service. Is that a fair conclusion? Yeah, I think so. I, I think also it, it helps me be a philanthropist. If I'm actually making some money, then I can, you know, it kind of flows through. So in our time remaining, Joe, we always ask ourselves on this show, what do we want our listeners to think? What do we want them to feel? And what do we want them to do with the compilation of all of the lessons that you've learned? So let, let, let's start with the first one. You've got a millennial on here listening, thinking about whatever their business is. What do you want them to think about their, their, the prospects for their future success? Well, um, I think try a lot of things. Um, uh, don't be afraid to fail. I, I think uh, in today's world, that's a... Um, you know, really a misconception or something you got to get past. Um, you really, if you're always afraid you're going to fail, you probably will. <laughs> and, and instead, um, you need to, uh, one, learn uh, where your strengths are, because eventually you want to learn to play to your strengths. Uh, where you have weaknesses, you need to figure out how to get coaching and fill them if you're going to continue to advance, uh, you know, in your career. But um, you get to, you know, unless it's one gigantic, terrible failure and you end up in jail, um, you can, you probably have the, the luxury of, uh, uh, if you're able to admit your failures and do something about it, uh, you probably have some opportunity to do that, but don't be afraid to fail. That's clearly number one. Well, that, that, that takes care of a couple things. That is, what do we want them to think? What do we want them to feel? But also, what do you want them to do? I would like a different takeaway then here. What are the three primary attributes that you look for in a leader that is coming into any organization, irrespective of the industry? Well, I, I think, you know, obviously listening, uh, the ability to actually actively listen, um, to uh, care about the mission of whatever our organization is. Uh, there are people that give it lip service. There are people that do really care. And uh, the people who really, really care are going to be, you know, um, uh, great leaders. And uh, they might be good leaders in one organization, a bad leader in another if they're just giving it lip service. So, uh, you know, it's the ability to listen. It, it's the ability to, um, uh, you know. Oh, you care? Right. And then uh, probably the third thing is to be humble enough to realize that uh, you don't have all the answers. And, um, the, you know, the fact of the matter is, uh, if you can be the quarterback and occasionally throw the pass and, and, and connect, uh, you, it's all about building the team around you. And uh, the stronger that team around you is, the more brilliant you suddenly become. So um, it's um, it's humility. Humility allows people to feel comfortable telling you the truth and uh, to your face. 
and knowing that they won't get in trouble for doing that. And a lot of times you need people to come right to you and, and tell you you're making a mistake. And that is that is the perfect takeaway, Joe. That, that's great. Thank you very much. To all of our listeners, thank you for tuning in. You have listened to A Climb to the Top, Stories of Transformation with Chuck Garcia. My guest this evening is Joe Bordeaux. And Joe, thank you very much. We really appreciate you coming on and sharing your lessons. Thank you, Chuck. I have to tell you that uh, my goal 50 years ago <laughs> was to be on 77 WABC <laughs> New York on Sunday night. And we finally, finally made it. It's good to have a goal, and I am honored to be the one who was able to host you, but I, I am grateful for your service and for all the lessons and all the great things that you have done and continue to do to your community and, and to all of the people that you come in contact with. And to all of our listeners, thank you for tuning in. Good night. Thanks, Jack. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.